All right, I'm going to do something different. Kids, pay attention. Here comes the principal. <laughs> All right, kids, this morning we're going to talk about the temple, about where God lives. So here's what I want you to do while I'm talking. Okay, well, listen first. But secondly, you have some stuff on the table that you're going to work with, all right? There are Legos. That's always good. The Legos are there so that you can build something that in your mind, if God were to live somewhere, what would his house look like? So build God a house with the Legos, okay? And then there's Play-Doh there as well. You guys are so lucky. With the Play-Doh, you're going to make an earth. You're going to make a planet. You're going to make the earth, okay? So you can play around with that because we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. There are other things at your table that you guys can be doing. How many of you know Psalm 23? Have you heard Psalm 23? It starts with this. Finish it for me. The Lord is my shepherd. Exactly, okay? Today I'm going to talk about another psalm, Psalm 132. This one's a little bit different than Psalm 23, but that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about that. Now, last week, I talked about a psalm, Psalm 131, that only had three verses. And of those three verses, I spent 30 minutes on two of those verses. Today's psalm has 18 verses. I figure I get four and a half hours to preach, so get comfortable. All right, this is one of the things that we got to realize about today's psalm, and it is simply this. We are barely going to scratch the surface of this psalm. This is what it's going to look like if this thing filled with water here is Psalm 132. This is what we're going to do today. We're going to cover about that much. And I'm not going to drink that. It's been sitting out all night. I have no idea who's been into it. This is about what it's going to look like because this psalm that we're covering today has all kinds of stories connected to it. This psalm touches on the story of David. You're going to see that. That's a really obvious one. It also touches on Solomon's story. It touches on Nehemiah's story. It touches on Jesus' story, and it even touches on our story. So there's all kinds of things going on in this psalm, not to mention even the poetry that's there, and there's all kinds of stuff we could talk about related to the poetry and how it's written here. We're not going to do that. Uh, we have plenty to talk about, but as I said, we're only going to touch just a little bit of this psalm. Speaking of which, you're going to need a Bible, so get your Bibles out. Open up your Bible apps. If you don't have a Bible, put your hand up in the air like this, and our ushers are coming, and they will make sure that you have a Bible that you can follow along in. Um, there is so much history and significance in this psalm, but we're not going to get to all of it today. I want you to remember that God sees time differently than we do. He sees the whole scope of all time all at once, not just each event chronologically as it happens like we do. We can look back we can sort of look ahead. God sees all of it, every bit of it together. So he intertwines all of it, and he makes connections between a psalm that was written around 2,500 years ago and a church family meeting in Egan, Minnesota today in 2023. It is all one picture for him. So let's get to our psalm for today, Psalm 132. Only two more psalms after this one, and then we're done with our series. 
So picture the Israelites coming close to the end of their journey, their trip to Jerusalem. Some historians actually believe that the Israelites may have sung these 15 psalms on a set of 15 stairs within the temple itself, but others believe that these were sung on the road as they traveled, and this one would have come up just as they were arriving at Jerusalem. Whatever the case, their destination was the temple. And they were near or in the temple as they sang this psalm together. This is Psalm 132. And this is what it says. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrata, we found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. All right, here we go. Uh, we don't know for sure who actually wrote this psalm. It wasn't David, but it was definitely about David. And it was about God's response to David. Back up one verse and uh, back up to verse one, and we'll look at some of what's in each verse and so that, we, so that we understand this better. Like I said, there's a lot there. We're barely going to cover this. But verse 1 says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. This is the beginning to a psalm of appreciation for the king, for David. The psalmist points out that David endured something in relation to the subject of this psalm, the temple. It says he endured hardships. And this statement isn't quite what we might think. It's not so much that David faced some sort of persecution or illness or crises. What we're had reading is that, is that David went to great lengths to do what this psalm is talking about. And the psalmist who wrote this is appreciating him and all that he did. But let's back up a bit in the history of David's efforts to establish a resting place for God's presence. That's obviously what the temple was all about, but the process of getting the temple established in Jerusalem 
came with its share of challenges. And it had to happen in God's time and in his time only. Okay, we're going to go way back to 1 Samuel for a minute. The Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God, traveled with the Israelites. They were known to even bring it to a battle to make sure that they had the presence of God with them as they fought in the battle. And the Israelites were at war a lot back then. But the ark had power, not magical power, not Indiana Jones power. The power of God's presence was with the ark. And so in 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites are fighting the Philistines and they're losing they need the ark to help them win, and so they bring it to the battlefield where they're fighting. The Philistines hear that the ark had been brought out, and they panic. They are well aware of the God of the Israelites and what he had done in Egypt to the Egyptians. But they continue to fight the Israelites, and the Philistines win to the tune of 30,000 Israelite soldiers dying. 30,000, and the Philistines captured the Ark. Now they have the Ark of the Covenant, and that is unexpected. Israel then mourned that the glory of God had left them. That's how important the Ark was to them. Okay, sidetrack story. This one is great. Philistines take the Ark, and they put it in one of their temples to a false god named Dagon. They have a statue of Dagon in this temple to this false god. They set it next to the idol. They set the ark next to the idol. The next morning they come into that place to discover that the idol to Dagon is laying face down on the floor. So they set it back up. The next morning, the idol's down again. And this time, the idol's head and both hands were laying next to the idol. And then came a plague of sorts. God afflicted the Philistines with tumors. They moved the ark to a different town. Same result, tumors on the people. Yuck. They sent it to another town, but that town panicked and said, no way, <laughs> not here. And there was a great fear among the Philistines. Eventually, they sent the ark away on a cart that was drawn by two cows. They put it on the cart, and they sent the cows off on their own. Interestingly, the Philistines added some offerings to the ark, all made out of gold, five golden tumors, and five golden mice to symbolize the plagues that they had faced. They set the ark and the offerings on the cart and they sent it away, gave the cows a slap and just sent them off. And they decided that if the cart went a certain direction towards the Israelites, directly towards the Israelites, then they would know that it was God who had afflicted them with the tumors and the mice. If it went a different direction, they were actually willing to assume that the tumors and the mice were just coincidental. So the cows took the cart straight off to the land of the Israelites. And the Israelites were thrilled to see it arrive, but it brought problems for them as well since they were not the ones God determined to have it in that location. And they sent message for someone to come and get it before anything else went wrong. 
This is an example of things that happened when the ark was traveling around, unsettled among the Israelites even. In 2 Samuel 5, David becomes king finally, and he proceeds to defeat the Jebusites and take control of a place called Zion. That's where the temple would be built by David, and David would eventually bring the Ark of the Covenant, representing God's presence, to rest there in the temple. David created there a temporary space for God, but his son Solomon was actually the one who built this elaborate, impressive temple. But David worked very hard to create a resting place for God and make sure that the Ark of the Covenant could dwell there. He went to great lengths to make that happen. Verse 2 talks about how he vowed to God that he would do this, and he stuck to his vow. This psalm appreciates David's commitment to his vow. In verses 3 to 5, we see David's commitment that he wouldn't sleep until that resting place for God was established. He was not going to even sleep. When things were ready, David and his people heard about where the ark was located, and they went and retrieved it. And, no surprise, the ark was causing problems for others where it was at that time. There was a man named Uzzah who was accompanying the ark, and when the ox pulling the ark stumbled, Uzzah reached out to steady the ark and touched it. And that scared David because Uzzah died. So David left it in another place for three more months. But in that place, God blessed it, and David went and brought it to the place that he had established for it. Side note, David danced with all his might, it says, over the arrival of the ark in Zion. And he was criticized, apparently, for what he wore while he danced. Now, David fulfilled his vow to provide the ark with a resting place. It was very important for him to accomplish that. And the presence of God stayed there in Jerusalem for a very, very long time. And three times a year for their festivals, the Israelites made pilgrimages to Jerusalem to visit the place where the presence of God dwelled. Verses 7 to 10 carry on the appreciation for David. God's footstool mentioned there was a reference to the ark. The Israelites associated it with God's presence. And so they, excuse me, so they would go visit God. Where the ark was, that's where God was. Verses 1 through 10 are meant as a blessing for David for what he had done. And that was what they celebrated at this point in the journey to Jerusalem. It was a big deal. And so they sang this psalm about what David had done. Then verses 11 to 18 give us God's response to David's efforts. That's the second part of this psalm. And there are parallels between the first and second part, again, that I'm not going to be able to get into here. God first responds by promising David that one of his sons would sit on the throne. And that happened. Solomon took the throne next and he built that incredible temple. Then in verse 12, God promises that if his descendants keep the covenant between them and God, they will occupy the throne forever. It's a pretty serious statement. And guess which one of David's descendants made that promise an eternal reality? Yes, it was Jesus. Starting at verse 13, 
We see affirmation from God that he had chosen Zion as his dwelling place. And Zion became a symbolic name for the place where God lives. God promised his provision for his people there, and he delivered. He even spoke of satisfying her poor with bread. And along came Jesus, who referred to himself as the bread of life. He spoke of clothing his priests with salvation. And oh, by the way, according to the book of 1 Peter, you and I as members of God's family have become a royal priesthood. Verse 17 speaks of a horn that would sprout for David, and that stands for victory. The horn was a symbol for victory. Jesus would bring an eternal victory for God's people. A lamp, a lamp would burn for the eternal king, God's anointed, which certainly sounds like it could speak of God's son who was promised the throne. And verse 18 speaks of clothing his enemies with shame. Clothing his enemies with shame. Romans chapter 9 verse 33 references a promise made by God that says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And I don't think I need to tell you who that refers to. Those who reject Jesus are put to shame by God. All right, once again, a loaded passage. And like I said, we're only dipping a small glass into a big bucket here. Where God lives is, as imp- is, an, is an important theme in the Bible and in all of God's story. And we've got to see that, church. Obviously, it was important to the Israelites at the time that this psalm was written. Their reality included God living in one specific location and they would have to travel to that location to be near God's presence. And the covenant relationship between God and his people included a desire for closeness. God's people wanted to be close to him and God wanted to be close to them. It was a mutual commitment that part of the covenant was never meant to go away. God always wants to be close to his people. He wants to be close to us. We know he's fulfilling part, his part of the covenant. How do we know? Well, look at the moves that God has made, is making, and will make to establish that closeness with his people. This is one of the main takeaways that I want to talk about related to today's psalm. God and his creation began with closeness. Sin interrupted that closeness, but God didn't quit. He established the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of his presence with his people. And you've seen this morning that the ark was far more than just some man-made idol. God's presence was real. He was there. A temple was then established to house God's presence. But God didn't stop there, thankfully. 
God sends Jesus. He gets closer. And Jesus takes the place of the temple in Jerusalem and speaks in John 2 of the temple, his body being destroyed, but then raised up again in three days. That's what we celebrated with communion this morning. And Jesus was attacked for claiming that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And then God gets even closer. Jesus sends his spirit to live in us, in his people. And we become the dwelling place of God. And that amazes me. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That passage points out that God's temple is holy and we are that temple. You and I are living stones in God's temple, his dwelling place. His dwelling place is very close. His people, his church is his dwelling place. And there's more to support that throughout the Bible, but then the Bible also gives us a picture of the future. And the future of the temple is included in that picture. Revelation 21 is such a critical passage for us, uh, for helping us to see what's coming. Verse 22 says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. This is part of the future picture of the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God that will return with Jesus to reign here on earth forever. God is coming even closer soon. Today, I hope. So, so close that he will live here with us in a renewed world. We will share this place with him and it will be his dwelling place forever and ours. And we will never be separated again. Throughout history, there has been a plan in action of God restoring this closeness with us. And that plan is focused on where God lives. Ultimately, his goal is to live here with us for all of eternity. And he will accomplish his goal. I put my hope in that. God established a covenant with his people that he will do this. In church, he will. We need to talk for a minute as we close here about the implications that Psalm 132 has for Chapel Hill Church. I think they're pretty powerful. David was aware of the fact that God desired a dwelling place among his people. He wasn't about to tolerate the ark being kept anywhere else. And so he led David, God led David to create a place for him, for his presence. Now God dwells among his people, not in a place made by human hands, but his desire to establish that dwelling place hasn't changed. I believe he's leading his church to create a place for him right now in an ongoing way. And obviously I'm not talking about a physical place. Buildings play a role in God's kingdom, but they're not built to house the presence of God. His presence is with his people and he goes with us wherever we might be. Nice building like this or no building at all. 
The psalm that we'll look at next week is all about unity. So we have a sneak peek at what this psalm is pointing to. But Jesus also pointed to a lot when it comes to establishing a dwelling place for God. Jesus gave us some very clear direction on what this temple, what this dwelling place of God should look like. Think about how many times Jesus talked to his disciples about loving each other. That's about the temple. The Apostle Paul wrote at length about how we make God's temple a place worthy of his presence. Take 1 Corinthians 13, for example, the love chapter written for the church, not for newlyweds. God desires to dwell in a place where love is given and received abundantly. God wants his dwelling place to be characterized by unity, love, forgiveness, service, humility, grace, a place where we build each other up and bear each other's burdens. A place where the fruit of his spirit grows in abundance. And you and I, church, we have a role in that. It doesn't just happen. And I would be absolutely blown away to see a statement like Psalm 132 be written about us. Chapel Hill should be remembered for how passionately we labored to create a dwelling place for the King of Kings. Brothers and sisters, we, plural, collectively, are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple of God. God faithfully stands at our door and knocks, desiring to come in and fellowship with us. Are we living like a church that welcomes his presence every time we gather, in everything we do, in every conversation we have, in the way we see and treat each other every single day? And there's no judgment here. I believe God is blessing us because he desires to be with us, to dwell with Chapel Hill Church, with his church, his kingdom. He's fulfilling his part of the covenant and way beyond. And we too are striving to be who he's created and called us to be. We're growing in this constantly. So let me be very specific about the implication of our psalm today. Can it be said of us that we are zealous like David was in our quest to collectively create a worthy dwelling place for God? Can it be said of us that we won't allow ourselves to rest until we know that God has the place that he deserves among us? This has to be our prayer and our purpose as a church, collectively as a church family, let's invite God to dwell in a place that he can be proud to call his temple. Every one of us has a role in that. So let's dig into this covenant with God more than we ever have. Let's pray together and then we'll close our time here this morning. <clears throat> Father, I ask that you would continue the work that you're doing in us, that you would continue what you've started here. 
that you would continue to transform us, shape us into the temple that you desire us to be. God, it simply amazes me that you have chosen to make your dwelling place here among your people, that you refer to us as your temple, that you refer to us as a royal priesthood, and that through Jesus Christ, you have consecrated us, you have made us holy, you have set us apart to be your dwelling place, where your presence dwells, where your power is demonstrated in many, many ways. God, this is a privilege, and we are so grateful for this. So thank you, Father, once again for opening up your word to us. Thank you for Psalm 132. Thank you for the Bible, for all that you've given us there, for an opportunity to gather together this morning and share this time digging into your word, hearing from you, hearing what you have for us. Thanks for your spirit, your guidance through your spirit, and for all that you do to open up our minds and our eyes to see your truth, for all that you do to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We praise you for what you have done, for what you're doing, and for what you're going to do. And we long for that day when you come here to dwell among us. Bring it soon, Lord. Bring that day to pass soon. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.